gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from The Muppets with the Director of Content Marketing at Circle CI. It's time to play the music. It's time to light the light. It's time to meet The Muppets on The Muppet Show tonight. It's time to put on makeup. It's time to dress up right. It's time to raise the curtain on The Muppet Show tonight. Jillian, how are you? I'm well, Ian. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Excited to chat content marketing and the Muppets and Let's everything in between. So first off, why the heck did you pick the Muppets? <laughs> it's a great question. So I thought about this and what I really love about the Muppets is they're not what you would think of as professionals in any sense. It's really a ragtag assortment of some pretty random folks of different sizes, shapes, and species. Me, 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 me. And they all have different skills and different superpowers. And what I love is that together, they really actually managed to get quite a lot done, famously putting on a Broadway play in under 19 hours. And like, you don't think they're going to be able to do it? I'm just barely making it. I don't know. Because they have this varied life experience and, you know, skills and sizes and all that stuff. Like, they get it done. They really do. And they do it in only the way that they can. And it's always entertaining. Yeah, I'm I'm a child of the 80s. So I grew up with a lot of Muppet content. So it's really deeply embedded in my subconscious. So it's, it was almost not a choice when you asked me, you know, what what pop culture reference would I like to talk about? It's like, the Muppet sort of flavors everything that I do and think is funny or interesting. So it was meant to be. Do you have a favorite Muppet? It's a two-part answer. Growing up, my favorite Muppet was always Grover because I really felt for his need to do things right and please others. And he felt, I always felt like he got the short end of every stick, but he really sincerely was always trying. And now my favorite Muppet is, is Pepe the Giant Prawn, just because he's so sexy. Hola, hello, I am Pepe the King Prawn, okay? King Prawn, uh, mm. I'm sorry, we're auditioning for a spoke shrimp. <laughs> he is sexy. I... <laughs> I'm admittedly huge Rizzo the Rat fan. Uh, ah, yeah. Couldn't love Rizzo more. And the Rizzo-Gonzo combo in Muppet Christmas Carol, when he like gives him a little kiss right on the nose. Oh, my God. It's like the funniest. <laughs> 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 it's like my favorite. He goes through the gate and he's like, oh, I forgot my jelly beans. And he runs back through. And <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Just the best. They are great. Which is a good teaser into what makes the Muppets so great. This is going to be a fantastic show. Yeah, it better be. And we're going to get into this thing called Muppet Theory in a little bit. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your role 
at CircleCI. Gladly. Sure. So I've been at CircleCI for a little bit over six years. I'm the director of content marketing, and I was the first content hire on the team. So I've built the team up from myself to now we're a group of six. So we market a product that is used by software engineers from small startups to giant enterprises. And we help teams focus on innovation and delivering great quality software. So we take a lot of the toil and the day-to-day work out of that to ensure that they have confidence in the quality of the software that they're producing. So what I took upon for myself and then as my team grew for the whole team is really building trust with our audience so that whether they were ready to try us for free today or become a paid account later, they always knew that we were a brand that they could trust. So we've focused from day one on a lot of educational content, being everywhere that they were, asking questions and being prepared with the right answers. So there's a really long life cycle in terms of developers learning about the space that we're in, continuous integration space. And we want to be there from the first day when they're in school or first undergoing like a digital transformation all the way through their entire career life cycle as a trusted brand, helping them learn how to develop software better and faster. That's the way it's done, boys. Meredith, what the heck are the Muppets? The Muppets is an American TV show. It features a cast of puppets performing various skits. And the now beloved characters are you know, super well known, including Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, Ralph the Dog, Fozzie Bear, Gonzo, Beaker, Animal, Swedish Chef. There are so many. I think there are like 50, potentially 50. It was originally created by Jim Henson in 1955, which kind of blew my mind because it's been around for seven decades, nearly seven decades. And it was originally a short form TV show called Sam and Friends, but it's grown into this expansive media franchise with tons of spinoffs like the Christmas Carol movie and their other movies. They've been in on Broadway, in music, they have their own songs. Phenomena. 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 And they've made TV appearances on like late night TV shows, which is wild. And the franchise was owned by the Jim Henson Company until 2004. And then it was bought by Disney. And Jim Henson has suggested that the word Muppet is combined puppet and marionette. Although he's later, they say he's later recanted that. So who knows? But there we have it. It's a perfect word. It's so silly, just like the rest of their universe. Yeah, of course they're called Muppets. It's also a great insult because if you call someone, (laughs) you're like, you're such a Muppet. It's not not really derogatory in any way, but it's like, it's kind of just pointing at like, yeah, you're a silly, ridiculous, you know, person. But lovable. (laughs) But super lovable, right? Uh, One of my, one of my favorite, favorite all-time insults. Not to, not to get too far into the marketing nerdiness here off the bat but like the idea of like category creation and all that stuff and like making someone making something unique obviously like things like pixar the way that they created their style of animation the muppet was its own unique creation by jim henson the way that he did it the way that they have continued to do this over years and years it has its own word and like they are the same they're unchanged for the most part, right? Like Kermit's the same, you know, 40 years ago as he is today. It's not easy being green. 
Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. They they live on forever. They continue to to do these amazing amazing things. And like as a creator of any kind, it is insane that you could create something. Like think about the most popular movies that came out in 1955. The most popular song in 1955. The most what like how much of that stuff is still going and like finding new audiences today. It's like pretty rare. And he made something that is forever. And it's like the coolest thing. What I really appreciate about that, and I think speaks to what you're talking about, Ian, is that maybe not from the very first day, but like very early on in sort of Muppet history, is like there was a lot of depth. And Jim Henson and his whole crew, like they never played down to their audience. Like there was so much intelligence and so many references. And like it was very high reaching for something that could have conceivably been oh, this is just for kids. You know, the same way that Cartoon Network so many decades later was like, oh, it seems like it's for children, but it's definitely for adults. It feels like Jim Henson was almost the first one in exploring in that space of really elevating this art form, especially, you know, on television to something that had a lot of depth that you wouldn't expect to see coming from puppets. A word of caution. There are scenes in this story which may not be suitable for adults. And that, I mean... Not to relate it to content marketing, I think there's a lesson there about never underestimating your audience and your audience's sophistication and intelligence. So part of, you know, my team writes a lot. We do blog posts and copywriting and video scripts and all these things. And like, we have a whole list of content values. And one of the values really speaks to treating your audience as intelligent as you are. So making sure that you're giving them all the information, preempting the questions they might have, having additional resources and links that you might want to point them to and and never kind of oversimplifying more than is needed. Yeah, and we'll get super deep into that, the marketing stuff here in a little bit. But I think there's so much like originality that and uniqueness to the Muppets and, and really to just Jim Henson because he then creates like Sesame Street, you know, what, 15 years later or 14 years later, it was just so, it's so unique there. And it's just like a reminder that sometimes just creating the most unique thing you can possibly do is just a really important thing. If it doesn't look like anyone else, if you're trying something, then you can make it yours and you're going to stand out. Boy, you sure are crazy. I know. And that there's no guarantee that something like that would work, right? He couldn't have looked next to him and been like, well, this other guy is doing something very similar and it's very successful, so I'll just do mine, my version of it, right? Like, as you're saying, it's a it's a brand new thing in the world, so it's almost a, a testament to taking risks and just going for it and not knowing. I mean, it might not have worked out, but it did in the long run and that some of our efforts at creative projects or branding or anything else like that are sometimes a little bit of a shot in the dark. We're not talking Sesame Street right now, but one of the things, so I have a two-year-old and I remember the first time we showed him Elmo and like, or we showed him like Sesame Street characters and he like fixated on Elmo immediately and was like, who's that? And like wanted to see more. And you're like, how? Like, how did this, like, how did they create these little characters, these these little things that 
40 years later, 50 years later, that a two-year-old can still just see and is like, what is that? I want to see that. I want to hear from that. And I think, you know, it, it's an important point to talk about sort of the highbrow nature of it because it allows you as an adult to engage with it. And the best, you know, you talk about the quote-unquote four-quadrant film, the best type of stuff is the stuff where you can watch it. And as an adult, you're like, oh, this is pretty good. And there's like nuance to this. And you can tell that an adult made this because of the way that like Gonzo does a certain thing or or whatever. So anywho. Well, there's certain bits of it that like I didn't appreciate till I was an adult and I go back and rewatch them. And I'm like, we were showing this to kids. Like yeah. as a kid, it resonated as child friendly, but I'm looking at it as an adult and I'm like, oh, they just like hang out in diners and smoke cigarettes. And they're just like <laughs> on, in these like scenario like they're in the what is it in the Muppet movie they're just like driving a Studebaker and I'm like I know what that is but like why would that be in a kids movie I don't know but it's there's this aspect of these sort of fantastical creatures in a real world scenario that I think appeals to adults as well as children because children really have a sense for the authentic and they know that there's something about this world that is real and that they can learn from that it's not just like watered down and catered to them there's there's something about that that i think has set them up it's a part and has always been really appealing and the same with sesame street right like they live in brooklyn you know like they're yeah. they're in a brownstone this is not like a, a a totally fake cartoon environment like there's there's like a garbage man you know like there's just regular yeah. stuff going on no it's it's like every great story right like they exist these characters exist in our world just like harry potter does just like Star Wars is a galaxy far, far away, right? Like, for a long time ago. Like, these things exist in our world, sometimes, like, literally in Brooklyn or sometimes wherever, but, like, it is part of it. So here we are at the end of the universe. Is there any more coffee? And, like, to a kid, that is what matters, right? That, like, they are part of this this sort of thing, and they have adult adventures. Like, they are, you know trying to do things that are you know like adults are doing but they also do stuff that kids are doing it's, it's yeah really they're like accountants it <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they got a band they got, they got a you band know. yeah exactly i think it's from the muppet movie that they decide that they're so the muppet movie or muppets take manhattan i don't remember but where they're trying to put on the show and then it's not looking like it's working out so they disband and they all get regular jobs and i'm just like I could just picture Kermit in his little three-piece 70s suit with the vest. Like, they're all just working in high-rises at these, like, desk jobs. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So there's one particular thing that is hyper-relevant to marketing amidst all of these called Muppet Theory. Get to the good part. So how did you first learn about Muppet Theory? So uh, Muppet Chaos Theory, I learned about it was it was published on Slate by Dahlia Lithwick in 2012. So I learned about it when I was working at my desk job, pretending I was knowing what I was doing at my first job in marketing and kind of like reading Slate and The All and all these blogs that, you know, mm. you would spend your day on at the time. And I came across this and it blew my mind. So essentially what she's proposing is that every single one of us is a chaos Muppet or an order Muppet. And we might not know it. And all the Muppets are Chaos Muppets and Order Muppets. And all of us are as well. So if you think about the Muppet Kingdom, it's divided into these 
Muppets that are like leaping through fire and driving off cliffs and smashing cookies everywhere. Like these are the chaos Muppets. You've got Cookie Monster and Animal and Fozzie and like Miss Piggy, like just Muppets that are wreaking havoc. The great Gonzo will catch a cannonball with his bare hand as fired from a muzzle-loading cannon. And then on the other side, you've got the Order Muppets who are just trying to keep everything under control and like bearing a lot of responsibility in the Muppet world. And that's like Kermit and Beaker and like the folks who are really just trying to hold it together. And you see across the Muppet universe, all these pairs of Muppets. So you've got Ernie and Bert, where Bert is the Order Muppet and Ernie is the Chaos Muppet. And they tend to group together, Kermit and Miss Piggy. There was a mess coming. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Piggy. Miss Piggy's always creating chaos and Kermit's trying to clean it up and they work really nicely together. So what she proposes in her theory is that if you're not sure which one you are, look to your partner or whether it's your life partner, your work partner. Like if you see that they're an order Muppet, it's likely that you are the chaos Muppet. <laughs> and that's why you work so well together. And so I've just always loved this theory, not just as it relates to Muppets, but just sort of different energies in successful collaborations or as we're talking about in marketing campaigns or anything else that you really need to have both the order aspect and the chaos aspect to make something feel alive and authentic. If you overplan, it, it's dead in the water and it's dry and predictable. And if it's too much chaos, you never can get it out the door because no one knows what time anything is happening. So you always need to have on a team or in a program like that nice blend of order and chaos. And I think that we so often do have it that way. And yet our marketing does not show that. And that is what is so interesting to me is like when we're talking about this as we prep for this conversation, that so much of our marketing is sterile. It is just order. It is things worked in a linear path. It is the, it's the case study without all the things that happened behind the scenes. It's like, yeah, we did this and we implemented and it was on time and we got our ROI. And it's like, but you forgot about like the knockdown drag out that you had with your CFO. You forgot about the fact that like, you know, your, your CRO is like super crazy and was trying to just buy baseball tickets for every single person. You had to fight them tooth and nail for this or like, you know, like whatever it is that like, they're just like a huge LPGA fan. So they just were like, we're going to blow a million dollars in the LPGA sponsorship. No, there's anything wrong with sponsoring sports, but the idea of like, it you for, you lose the context for all of those things and and I think that if we spent more time in our marketing like correctly identifying the first the story like the through line that you're trying to tell and like just do a little bit of research to say okay there's probably an order muppet and there's probably a chaos muppet that you work with and like telling the story of both of those things could be really beneficial Oh, yeah. We had one piece of content we did a few years ago that was about like how to sell Circle CI to like the stick in the mud in your team, which was basically like a step by step guide of how to roll out a proof of concept and get a, a get buy in from someone who's least likely to most, you know, the most grumpy person on your team, basically. And like, I love that. how to prove to them that this is a great investment. I will astonish you all because you're right. There are those people on our teams, there's those people in our audiences, in our markets. And just marketing to one sort of persona or one approach is just going to get you a small segment of the folks that you really want to reach. I love that idea. 
I was attending an online conference put on by Superside called Ignite a few months ago. And on one of the panels they had about testing creative, someone was, I forgot, I wish I remember his name, but he was talking about sort of this chaos element of like ad copy testing and other things where like there's the high and low and you're never, you can never be sure which one is going to hit with the audience. Like you can spend Mm -hmm. a long time designing something that's really polished and like really perfect. But then he gave the example of like those coupon booklets that come in the mail, the the super value pack Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that like those work and like they're not winning any design prizes or copy prizes or anything like that. But like it's just about being able to test both high and low all the time because you never know what's going to hit with any particular audience. And it's never a judgment on, you know, the perspective of that audience member or where they're coming from. It's just like, which way is the wind blowing that day? What's going to catch your eye? Drum roll! And I was thinking a lot about that when I was thinking about this call and thinking through like, okay, where is there order and chaos in our kind of current content strategy? And, you know, the blog is very orderly. We've learned a lot about SEO and how to, you know, figure out what questions people want to know about and how to answer them with technical tutorials in our case. And like, I think the team's gotten really good at that. And then we've got a podcast, as you mentioned, with our CTO interviewing folks. And like, that's much more of a chaos aspect Mm -hmm. because not only you never know where the conversation is going to go, but he's also kind of standing in and asking the questions that the audience wants to ask. And like, it's very funny and it's, we're really not selling in that show at all. We're really creating affinity and trust and informing and educating and being able to share our perspective on how our industry works with others. So that's sort of the chaos aspect. And I think about like, okay, our lead magnets for our performance marketing, like, okay, that's very orderly. Like we know what people want to learn about and what they want to grab. Like, that's great. But the ad copy is like another place where we test wildly because you don't know, like sometimes <laughs> it just like in my, in my career, like there's been times when you just like, oh, we, we throw in something that's ungrammatical because you know, it's going to catch someone's eye or put a question mark at the end of something. Cause it's just like, what? And, but you've got their attention and like, then you can go and make the connection. But I think that that order and chaos sort of marriage shows up everywhere. I love it. I totally agree. I think that that's why events are so successful because there is so much order in an event. You get on a flight, you go to, you get your hotel room, you go, here's the schedule, here's the this, this is when the meals are happening. And then we do a happy hour, which is just go drink, go meet people, go do whatever you want to do. Then there's after parties where then you can like really go let your hair down or do whatever. That would be so snazzy. And the person that you sat, you know, in those small group sessions that was so buttoned up all day that they drank three Mai Tais and are wearing their tie around their head and, and, you know, singing karaoke. Like, we want that as human beings. Like, we want that. And like, some, some people don't. Some people just want to go, you know, back to their hotel room. But their order is going back to the hotel room and going to sleep. And the chaos for them is being around a bunch of people if you're like very introverted or whatever. And like, there's so much marketing that works, that has things for both sides. One of the things that you mentioned is this idea that like, maybe you think you're an order Muppet, but then you get around someone who's like more ordered than you. And then you actually become sort of the chaos Muppet, even though you feel like you're generally like that. 
And I'm definitely like one of those people that like, depending on who I, I'm with, I'm like, you know, more like one or the other. And I was thinking about that this weekend because I was with a group of people. And when there's that one person who's like the wild card and they're like super over the top and then you're like, okay, well, I got to get the Uber so that we can actually get to the dinner on time. Otherwise, we're going to keep telling stories until, you know, it's whatever. And like that stuff is so good. That's such good storytelling. It's such good marketing to like bring those things into your marketing, sharing those different things, sharing the different types of people that are at your office. You know, that, that stuff is great and it's super authentic and it feels good. And the more that you can do that, the better. And the less quote unquote on brand stuff, that's like what drives me freaking crazy. Like, oh, well, we're just going to kill all of this design copy and all of this like authentic language and we're not going to use this, that, or the other because it's quote-unquote off-brand. You're like, what does that even mean? Like, what are you talking about? I think there's like a time and a place for things. There's probably like concentric circles of like, this stuff needs to be really on-brand and like the legal team needs to look at it and like everyone has to check off on it. And then stuff that as you get further out, like we were talking about, like social or like the podcast is perfect because it's not the brand talking to anybody. It's a person who works at the company who's sort of a representative of the brand, but there's an agreement amongst the audience that this is just a human being with their own background and interests and they like snowboarding and whatever, you know, like they're bringing their full life and experience to that channel or that program. And so there's so much more, not only like buffer and forgiveness for them being off-brand at times or whatever, but there's so much more interest as a result because you're not engaging with a brand. I think that's where you see the difference between like on social, the brand responding to people's comments and replies versus, oh, I'm a, I'm a product manager at this company. I do want to talk to you about this versus like the logo talking to you. Yeah. And I think that you're exactly right that there's like concentric circles to that. And if you want to feel like your entire brand is like super bundled up always and it's like only official channels or whatever, you just have to know that your marketing is going to be boring. Like, because if there's no humanity in it, if it's just features and benefits, like that is not how people buy. Like people, especially in B2B, which like data proves this, that people are actually less rational buying B2B software than they are buying things for their own like purchases. So like it's even more emotional driven. So if you're trying to get people to commit to you with emotion and you're using the opposite of that, like how effective is it really going to be, right? I totally agree. I think there's this sort of sentiment in marketing, especially to enterprises that you're like selling to a business or like a big building when really like it's an individual in there who may be either an order or a chaos muppet and have, like you were saying, a partner who's making things difficult for them or whatnot. But like they're just people, again, who like snowboarding and go home and watch the Muppet movie with their kids or whatever. Like it's just an individual trying to solve a problem. And I've been thinking a lot about that in my work of just like, what is this person's sort of best case scenario and worst case scenario for their day to day? And how can I go in and help them achieve what they're trying to do? Any other Muppet related thoughts? I had one thing that I posted to my team earlier today when I told them I was coming on this show. And I was like, here are the things I'm going to talk about. And one of them was sort of Kermit the Frog based leadership style, which is like <laughs> gathering everyone together around like an inspirational organizing principle 
that somehow involves rainbows, but with no real formal plan of like what to do and how we're going to do it. And so like that's that's step one. Step two is a freak out with just like the little skinny arms like going like this. (laughs) And then step three is profit. And like somehow all of it works out because everyone bands together at the last moment and they're really subscribed to the inspirational operating principle, whatever it may be. And I would say I could credit a lot of my success as, as a leader to really just Kermit the Frog inspired leadership tactics. I thought about this as well. And mine was also Kermit related, which is the scrunched face Kermit moment. Where it's like, <laughs> if you can get, especially like if you're telling a joke, if you're doing something, <laughs> and if you can get them to do that like scrunch face, like turn their head to look at you like Kermit is not impressed face, that is my favorite moment in the world is we you can just get someone with that zinger that that they usually by just calling them a muppet and they just turn their head slowly and look at you with that like kermit is judging you sort of a look which has become obviously a super popular meme so there's that piece then the other one is like the kermit sipping tea i'm just minding my business piece which is just like it's so good and like those two memes would but he's in the car oh my gosh that's like the funniest thing ever and he just slowly turns like why they're popular memes is because it's a story in a second right is like we know exactly what kermit means by those two things and if you send someone that sipping the tea thing they know exactly (laughs) what it is and if you send them that face they know exactly what it is we have a kermit sipping tea emoji in our company slack oh do you that's great definitely But like, I just remember like so many moments in work where it's like those two things happening when your boss does something super that you're like, hey, you shouldn't do this. And they do it anyways. And then you just send that emoji to your coworker. And then, you know, (laughs) back in the day when I was in the army, there was, we had designated parking spots. And I used to park in my, one of the guys who worked for me, parking spots all the time. And I would just watch him come and I had a spot next to his spot. So I, I didn't need to do that. And every time I just like walk him, come into work and he would just do the Kermit face. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so those, those are my thoughts of like, if your marketing is good and you can think of like the Kermit face that you could elicit by them reading or watching your thing. You know, you've hit um, a real emotion. If there's a Kermit reaction gift that could come as a result of your marketing, <laughs> whatever it may be. One of the content marketers on my team, um, she would be sharing this, but when she first joined, she would often like very frequently send the gift that's like Kermit, like hanging up the phone and then falling off the table. That's called like yeah. just help. <laughs> Just every time she was overwhelmed and I'd be like, go talk to this very senior person to go solve your problem. She'd be like, I'm melting. (laughs) I'm in the midst of a nervous breakdown. So emotive for a little frog. (laughs) One of the things that we did in our blog, Jillian, that we have like virtually no content on our blog for reasons. But anyways, one of the things we started doing is we started, we created a little banner that had the faces of the people who actually wrote it. And so what Colin on our team, I was a co-host of the show, what he did was he had an arrow to like, this person wrote it, like this person made the design and then it pointed to me and it was like, this person just sort of like said, okay. Um, And uh, (laughs) This person put it in the launcher. Yeah, right. But 
I always felt like just putting some faces to that really humanizes this blog post that it came from people and not like the mindless sort of, you know, cyborg. Not robots. Chat GPT. Become more and more important as we get further into this world where robots can generate a lot of the content that folks were generating. Like being able to see that human aspect of content production and knowing that it's coming from someone with real lived world experience. Like that's to me like the difference between what's going to become incredibly and mundane as people can produce thousands of blog posts a day that are just lists of top 10 reasons to do whatever becoming meaningless and the stuff that people had to experience in order to reflect and write about things that robots can never do you know like here's what i learned working in this job or here's how it, how to thing that only people can do yeah i know something you don't know too as you're saying like those are going to become more and more valuable and it's really going to create this sort of sifting effect in my opinion where those will be sought out as the sort of bottom of the pyramid grows and grows and gets full of sort of cruft these different types of content pieces will really rise to the top where you have that human factor and that chaos factor in it really because people can tell the difference like already people can tell like oh did chat gpt write this um even though it's grammatical it's factual mostly you know you can tell that there's not a human behind it because it's so even i think that's like where people can sense and that's why your your child can sense that elmo is someone to listen to right because he's like he's not perfectly even keeled he's emotional he gets upset about things he's sad you know kids really respond to that and the same with this sort of chaos factor in the marketing content that we produce is that that's what signifies authenticity is those things that robots could not reproduce because they've got a little bit of tinge of satire or, you know, spice or anger or just like hard won experience. You can tell that there's someone behind there with something to teach you or something to express. And people respond to that in my experience. Like it doesn't have to be so scrubbed and clean of anything that might be a little bit off brand or an opinion of somebody's. Those are exactly the parts where people start to pay attention. One of those things is your content strategy, Jillian. So how, <laughs> how do you think about uh, uh, your content strategy? Well, since the beginning, I've always thought that the work that we do as content marketers is sort of a blend of art and science. And so, you know, the science is like good storytelling, SEO, you know, like discoverability, all that kind of stuff, channel balance. But the art piece is thinking about the people. And for me and for Circle CI, it's been thinking about building trust with our audience. So always, always being there, having content in as many places as possible for free, just trying to give away as much useful information as we can, organize information so people can understand it better, help give them, you know, paradigms or frameworks for understanding the industry, how to grow as a software engineer, all these things and just being in as many places as we can being really useful and really thoughtful and memorable so that we have the content that people are sharing. So when we were smaller company and we didn't have as much domain authority, you know, like there's certain things you can win on when you're small and when you're big and they sort of switch. So when we were smaller and didn't have the domain authority that we have now, we were really banking on utility 
So can we invest a lot in these single pieces of content that people would share and share and share and share because there was nothing better than it? So once you saw it, you would have to pass it on to someone. So we did a few things like that. One was our engineering competency matrix. I worked with our engineering team and our engineering leadership and our design team for like six months. And we open sourced our entire competency matrix and wrote about how we developed it. And that's a document that is like five years old. And it's a Google, an open Google Doc. Every time I go on there, there's still like 12, you know, anonymous raptors on there. Just like using the content. And that was worth it because it was a valuable resource. And we've done a few things like that. Certainly, we have like uh, some introductory software tutorials and things like that that are resources that I know folks are sharing with their peers, sharing with folks that they're mentoring. And they've just become these tools. And that's been a great marketing strategy. It's, you know, sort of free <laughs> besides all the investment of creating it. But being useful, I think, is a sort of an underutilized strategy. Yeah, to be useful, you have to be used, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, that's why we named the show Remarkable, right? Is like you have to actually remark about it to someone else, which means you have to send it to someone, you have to share it to someone, you have to talk about it to someone. Like that is the only way, if that's your metric, to make it that good, it has to then be, you know, served in that sort of way. And then I guess like the alternate of that would be like bookmarked, right? If like, you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to come back to use this later. I'm going to come back to refer to it over and over and over again. And then at some point in time, probably you're going to come across a peer that is looking for that same thing. And you go, oh, this is what I use all the time. Yeah, it should be the North Star, right? It should absolutely be a way to do that, but it's pretty hard to do. I think a lot of folks end up erring on the side of like wanting to be remarkable because it's like so sensational. Right. But that's like, it's a drop in the pan and it's cheap and it's actually pretty forgettable. Exactly. But sometimes going the order route and being like, what can I create that will be immensely useful to people and a worthwhile investment does make you remarkable for a different reason and probably for a reason that's more aligned with your brand. How do you think about the ROI of content? It's a great question. So we certainly measure you know, leads generated from our content and things like that, as well as engagement metrics. But for me, the, I think one of the most like special ones was when we noticed that we were getting a lot of direct traffic on some of these very foundational pieces. Like, I think it's a, at least in our space, it's very tempting to want to write these like super high level, obscure, advanced use case kind of content or tutorials, but really the foundational ones it's not even that folks are finding it who need to learn, but there's these certain people who are the folks in every organization that people go to to ask questions and learn from. And they're like, oh, you want to learn how to use Docker in this case? Like, great, here's the tutorial I give to everybody. And we were noticing that traffic was coming from those kind of sources, which to me felt like a, a huge vote of confidence from these sort of like quiet influencers in the space. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's really cool. You have a team of six now, obviously started as one. Any lessons there of sort of like how to sort of justify that you need to have a bigger team? I think just becoming very needed, being really helpful. Like if you're a team of one, being that person who can jump onto the various projects of your various stakeholders and partners across the org and always being ready to show the value of the work. Because I think in our space, people don't always immediately get what content is or why it's important that it's not fluff. And so 
showing that those writing skills, those creative skills, those strategic distribution skills are really valuable, helps you attract more work than you can take on, thus helping you make the case for a larger team. I don't think you get to make the case by explaining sort of academically the value of content strategy. Maybe some people would be good at that. I never was. But if you're like, here are all the requests and here's the potential ROI on all of these projects if I could ship them, if I had one more person or two more people, I think that can be really useful. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned the podcast a few times, obviously, is you know more of a chaos type thing. It seems like y'all invest a lot in video. You have podcasts. You're using a lot of multimedia. I know you have people on your team that are dedicated to that. I think that's a pretty modern approach but perhaps is starting to feel like table stakes now? Like, how do you think about like sort of creating in multimedia? I think it's just about being where people are and not being afraid to experiment with different ways of reaching folks with often the same message about, in our case, how to build software better, faster, you know, more confidence. So every time there's sort of a new opportunity that we see right now, it's like in short form video. Like, how can we get there and how can we show up with kind of, as we've talked about, like authentic people that folks can connect with? And that's often the hardest part is finding the people sort of internally that will be champions for your program and like either want to be stars or reluctantly will come be your star. <laughs> There's um my multimedia content marketer had sent, I forget where they're from, but it's just like corporate business TikTok these videos of like your lone content marketer or your organization, like going to tap someone on the shoulder at their desk, holding like a ring light and they just turn around and they go, no. (laughs) Because that's often the hardest part is finding the folks who are interested in being that authentic face of your brand. Because hearing from content marketers, unless you work at HubSpot, you know, is not always what people want to hear about. They want to know the real thing from the person who's really doing that work, which in our case are our software engineers. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, totally. That's exactly, I mean, it's the same way that I feel about it is like people consume all those different things. One of the most popular questions that we get all the time is like, I don't watch podcasts on YouTube. Like, do people really do that? I'm like, yeah, lots of them. But like, just because you don't, like just because you don't aren't on Twitter or aren't on TikTok or whatever, doesn't mean that there's like not a bunch of people on there. And I think that sort of the fear is like, oh, I have to be everywhere. It's like, I don't think you have to be everywhere, but I think that if you're not creating in video, like if you don't have a significant investment in a video forward strategy, like you're absolutely going to get left behind. It like is more effective. It works better. Like we've seen that in the data. It's an interesting thing, but for certain types of people, they're like, well, I still like to read books. So like, why would we create, you know, stuff on YouTube? And you're like, I mean, it's YouTube. I don't know what to tell you. It's. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's so many different kinds of people who learn in lots of different ways. And I do. I agree with you that it's a mistake to say, well, I, I never download podcasts. I just stream them. So that's the number that I'm going to track. You have to kind of look at the whole picture. But yeah, it's when you said before, we don't really write much on our blog for reasons. And I was smiling because I was like, that's great. It's 2023. Like, I don't know that you even need to write on your blog anymore. I think I joined the team in 2017, which it was a different story then, you know, like video existed, of course, but like these things ebb and flow and they shift, they switch up in value and importance. And I think that the world of content and organic search especially has shifted a lot where I think the written word, you know, the blog piece serves a different function than it did a few years ago, where 
maybe six or 10 years ago, it was like this sort of more media driven landscape where people had the blogs that they visited and they would go and refresh for new content and they just always want to see what was new. And now it's very search driven and that really changes what is worth publishing on a blog, especially a, a corporate blog versus what's not worth the production time and resources. So I think that's fine. And it's really a matter of like sensing what's happening around you and like choosing where your audience is and what's worth the investment and knowing why you're doing it sort of as a closing thought. Like I think the world of content can be very overwhelming. There's so many channels and so many places and a lot of pressure to be on every channel doing everything. But if you think about like, how does this stuff all fit in together? Once you understand how the, your machine works, your sort of Rube Goldberg machine that you've built, like you can make better choices and trade-offs about where to be and where not to be with your precious resources, however many people are on your team. Jillian, it's been wonderful having you on the show. For our listeners, you can go to circleci.com to check more about their company and The Confident Commit is a cool podcast where they talk about how to deliver software better and faster. So send it to the people on your dev team. Any final thoughts? Anything uh, to plug? Um, no, the only thing I want to leave you on is an image of like little green felt Kermit feet. I was just going to say. <laughs> just just little his little skinny feet. Other than that, Ian, thank you so much. And Meredith, thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. I was going to say that this podcast was such a treat. It's like seeing the glimpse of Kermit legs, which is always uh, always a surprise. Yeah, thank you. Those of you with nervous dispositions will be very happy to know that we have reached the end of the Muppet Show. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>